Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, you're going to meet a man who wants you to help him write 400,000-plus obituaries. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Don Milne of Bountiful, Utah, who's engaged in a project to record an obituary for every American killed in World War II. Here is motivation, how the project started, and how it's exploded into a worldwide collaboration. Plus, I'll talk to a woman who went cousin fishing in Italy and caught a big one. We'll tell you how and what she did. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. My name is Fisher. I am your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, you know, I tell you what, people are passionate about their genealogy and family history, and I don't think there's anybody more passionate than one of our guests today, Don Milne. He's a resident of Bountiful, Utah, and he's taken it upon himself to write the obituary of every single American military person killed in World War II, 400,000 of them. Obviously, he can't do it by himself, it's a big project he's got started, and people all over the country and around the world are starting to contribute to it. We're going to talk to Don about this project and how you can be a part of it as well coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. Right now, it's time to head out to Stoughton, Massachusetts, to the home of David Allen Lambert, who's working remotely as the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hi, Dave. How you doing? Doing okay. Happy warm and summer days to you and oh. all the listeners out there. Oh, yeah. Well, being out here in the West, we've had days typically 105 to 110 recently. Uh, <laughs> I've been staying indoors a lot, not just because of COVID. <laughs> Believe me. Well, I can imagine. Well, for me, 85-degree weather and 90-degree weather is as warm as I needed to get right yep. now. But they say we're going to get into the triple digits soon enough. Well, I'll tell you, it's always fun looking for stories, and a lot of them are on ExtremeGenes.com, and I love the one, because I love World War II stories, is the race to the ace. Now, basically, this is pilots, besides fighting the Japanese, they were trying to score records and to be the one that got the most kills. Yeah, and it's funny, they write about this in Smithsonian, and that's what we have linked to there. And Ace didn't typically use the term kill. He typically used the term victory because they weren't trying to kill the pilot. They were trying to shoot down the plane. Yet the article still referenced kills in there, which I thought was kind of interesting. But it's a common misunderstanding of of exactly what was going on. But it was quite a competition among some of these flyboys to become uh, the aces of aces. Exactly. And those Lockheed P-38s were like a really lethal fighter jet. And you would see a lot of pictures of the pilots with either German flags or Japanese flags, counting for each plane they shot down. And it often didn't end well, by the way, for some of these pilots because they were so aggressive to get their records that they themselves wound up being shot down. Exactly. And that's one of the things which is kind of hard that you're trying to fight a war. But while I've got 27 victories, you've got... 24, I don't want you to catch up with me, so I'm going to go that extra level to go and shoot down three more planes and maybe run out of fuel, maybe crash or get shot down yourself. Yep. 
Well, a lot of things are closed, including our National Archives in Washington, D.C., but there is the opening of the British Archives. The British Archives will open on July 21st. You need to book an appointment before you visit, and you can go to the nationalarchives.gov.uk to find out more about it. But it's a sign that things are starting to get back to the new normal. It will be nice to know that a place that has records back to the Domesday Book are going to be available for researchers once again. I'm glad you said that, too. I've heard more people talk about the Doomsday Book. and It's like, no, 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 it's Domesday, a whole different thing. Well, a father and son out in Texas decided to take a road trip out to Alabama to the Pea River Cemetery in rural Pike County. And this is where they located the site of where their ancestor in the Revolutionary War was, but he didn't have a gravestone. But they did do some research, Fish, and they found out that he was buried next to his son. So now there's a gravestone that's been erected there. A great way to keep history alive. Yeah, the uh, the dad and this father and son team is uh, quite the historian, and he figured this out and went out there, and he said it was just one of the thrills of his lifetime to visit the burial site of the ancestor he knew so much about who fought in the Revolution. What a great thing to be able to do during this pandemic. You know, I always say people don't smile enough looked at an old photograph. People don't smile. You ever wonder why? One of the misconceptions on this is that people didn't smile because it took so long for the exposure. And that is true. But there's actually other reasons behind it. And a great article on FamilySearch.org about why people didn't smile goes beyond photography, back to the days of painting, because most people did not have a wide mouth, toothy grin, because back then it was associated with madness or being drunk or otherwise an informal, <laughs> immature behavior of some sort. So why, you know, so you, you smile like, what are they up to? You know, that Cheshire cat grin. So when did we start smiling? Well, they estimate it's probably around the time the Brownie camera came out in the early 1900s, because these are affordable to the general public. You're not going to a studio where someone's going to be there for a long time. They are quick, and you could get that accessibility of everyday life, and you get the spontaneity of smiles and laughter. That's awesome. And it makes you wonder, by the way, how many people didn't want to smile because their teeth were so bad back in the 19th century. There's that. In San Paulo, Brazil, you may find Confederate flags flying. Why? Because they celebrate their Confederate heritage. San Paulo, Brazil saw after the Civil War many people that were Confederate soldiers move there. Why? Well, because Brazil still had slavery. And there are descendants still there today, and they have annual celebrations. Stars and bars are flying, and they celebrate their Southern heritage. A great article by Dick Eastman that came out just recently. Yeah, talks about that, and it's causing some tensions there in Brazil now. They've even maintained their English language and the Southern accents down there. It's, it's kind of crazy. In the village down there that Dick talks about, it's called Americana in San Paulo, Brazil. Take a peek at that article. It's really good. Thanks so very much, and uh, talk to you soon. All right, David, thank you so much. Actually, sooner than you think, we're going to have you back, of course, for Ask Us Anything at the back end of the show. So just the other day, I read about this story for the first time. A man in Utah who's made the decision that he wants to record the stories of every American soldier killed in World War II. You've got to be kidding me. That's over 400,000, and that man is Don Milne. He's from Bountiful, Utah. He's on the line with me right now. Hi, Don. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Welcome to Extreme Genes. Tell me about this. What got you going in this direction? 
Well, three and a half years ago, it was more of a personal project. Right after the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, they were interviewing a bunch of veterans. It's great to honor them, but they'd be the first ones to tell you that the real heroes were the ones that didn't come home. And I always thought that those who died in World War II kind of got the short end of the straw for obvious reasons. They didn't make it home, but we really, as a nation, don't do the best job we could at remembering them. We have Memorial Day. But if you were to ask your average American, can you name 10 people, five people, one person that died in World War II, they'd probably have a hard time telling you that. They could tell you which of the Avengers died, and they said it was Gamora and Black Widow. So, spoiler alert, yeah. if you didn't know that, but most people do. <laughs> but they're pretend heroes, and we, we say, oh, they did such a great sacrifice for the Avengers and for humanity, but this is make-believe. But of these 400,000 people, most of us don't know anything about them. There are about 400 that were awarded the Medal of Honor, so they kind of represent the rest of them, and, and they get mentioned more than, than most. But what about the others that didn't get the Medal of Honor? We really don't have a good way to remember them. And in the past, for obvious reasons, you couldn't find their information real easy. But now in the 21st century, anybody with uh, internet connection and just a little bit of researching skills can find a story about any one of those people. So three and a half years ago, so I'm just going to, every day, I'm going to pick someone, 100th anniversary of when they were born, I'm going to write their story to represent the people that were born that day. And so I've now done more than 1,200 of those, and I have a few people that have been helping me along the way. And so as a group, we've done over 1,300. Wow. And I've always planned to stop this coming September 2nd, because it's the uh, 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. And I will have had one name for every day that America was fighting in World War II. So about 1,370 names. But when people who've been following this project, they were kind of upset that I was going to stop this. And I kind of did the math and said, well, there's an obvious reason why I'm stopping this. <laughs> I'm never going to live long enough to do 400,000 names. Right. So I started a project called Stories Behind the Stars. And now I invite people from all over the country, and I have even have now people from a few other countries that are helping me out. And it takes about an hour to find the information you need to write a short 200, 600-word obituary style story of that person who died in World War II. Think about this, though. You're talking about if you got 1,000 people to do one a day for a little over a year, you'd uh -huh. get all 400,000 yeah. of them done. It just doesn't seem that undoable, yep. especially in this day and age. So is there a yeah. site people can go to to see where this is going on? Yeah, they just have to go to storiesbehindthestars.org. It's a nonprofit initiative that I started. And they'll have a way to put in their contact information, and I can get them the details on how they start doing the research. And first few might take a little bit longer, but an average is going to take less than an hour to do the research wow. and write this little short snippet of that person's life. So do you write about um, the, just their lives, or do you talk about how they died or what battles they were in? What do you include in the information, or is it just what you can find? Yes, it's just I can find. Sometimes there's very little, not even a photo of the person, but sometimes it's like a gold mine. And if anybody's kind of like doing detective work, and a lot of people who do family history, they start off researching somebody and they just have a name and they realize, wow, when I started this, I had no idea this is where it was I was going to find. So yeah. it could be kind of addicting. And a lot of the people that so far are helping me, I've got interest so far from 31 states and two countries. They may have started because they had a relative, a grandfather, a great uncle, or somebody that they personally knew, and they write their story, and they said, well, I already know how to do this. Maybe I'll write the story about the eight other people that were on their bomber, and then they'll find out their stories. So don't do this unless you think you may want to do this. <laughs> it's a rabbit hole. It's huh? so much fun. Is that yeah, what you're yeah. saying? For the kind of person that's drawn to this, it can be really a very fulfilling type of a, a hobby.
really something in the age of coronavirus where a lot of people that are interested in this are older and they've got more time on their hands and everyone's telling them you can't go out as much. Well, how many times can you watch Tiger King? Right. <laughs> you got to find something more productive to do with your time. So exactly. you got access to computer. It doesn't cost anything. My uh, organization will give you the tools that you need to know how to do this. And I'm surprised at the quality of the stories that have been written so far. It's like, man, I, I don't want to write any more stories because the people that are writing them are doing a better job than me. <laughs> I should just quit while I'm ahead. So, Don, tell me then a couple of the stories that stick out in your mind. You've done 1,200 of them so far. You must right. have a couple that are really well, outstanding. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a couple. I'll tell you one by the last name of Fisher, and then I'll tell you another one. So the Fisher family... There was an individual by the name of Dale born on October 12, 1918. So back in 2018, I did his profile because that would have been 100 years from his birthday. So he actually wasn't the first one in his family that volunteered for the war. His younger brother volunteered before Pearl Harbor. But the day right after Pearl Harbor, Dale volunteered to join the Army. And he got into the Army Air Force. He became a uh, bomber pilot. And a couple weeks after D-Day, his B-17 was shot down over Lille, France. And his younger brother, his name was John, unfortunately, about a month later, he was killed in action. He was an infantry soldier, and he was killed in Normandy oh. in the 30th Infantry Division. So two brothers from the same house. But this is what's even more fascinating. And of the 1,200, this is the only one that I found like this. Their father, when those two sons were born, that was his second marriage. He was actually married many years before he was older when he had his sons, Dale and John. He had a son named Frank who was born in 1900. He volunteered to fight in World War One, and he was killed oh. in World War One. Wow! So from one family, this Fisher family from Michigan, they lost three sons. One in World War One who died before his other brothers were born, and then these two other brothers that died in 1944 in France. And the one that was shot down, his plane was shot down about 120 miles from where his older brother is buried. The two younger wow. brothers are now buried in Michigan. So when I started this project for that day, I only had a name, Dale Fisher, and that's what I found out. Wow. So the other story I wanted to share that's very interesting is there's an individual by the name of George Hutchison. He was born July 2nd of 1917. So he was actually one of the people I researched the first year I was doing this. He died on the last day of the war, September 2nd, 1945. He was a B-29 pilot based in Guam. His plane was actually broken down that day. So he just could have stayed on base because his plane wasn't flying. But his squadron had been invited to fly over Tokyo Bay during the surrender ceremony on the battleship Missouri. So while MacArthur's on the battleship Missouri and the Japanese representatives are signing the surrender documents, the American Army Air Forces were flying hundreds of planes over the harbor to show the Japanese, you're making the right choice to surrender because you wouldn't want to have to deal with all our might. So he could have been a pilot. They could have taken him as an extra pilot to fly over the battleship Missouri. And that would have been quite the story he could have told his kids and grandkids that I was there when the surrender was signed and sure. I flew over the battleship Missouri. But they also were looking for pilots to help with dropping supplies to American POWs in Japan. The, the Japanese weren't fighting anymore, so they were allowing American planes to fly over and drop supplies to the POW camps because they were very low on medical supplies and they didn't have enough food. The Japanese really didn't have enough food to even feed their own people, so the POWs were really needing food. So he volunteered to be a third pilot because it's a long distance to fly from Guam to Japan and back. So he volunteered to be on this plane after the plane took off from Guam, it developed some mechanical issues, so it had to fly back. You don't land a B-29 full of gasoline, so for about three hours, they just circled the field until most of the gasoline had been burned off. And then when they landed, unfortunately, 
maybe it was a mechanical issue that they had in the first place, but the plane crashed and three men survived after it crashed and, and blew up. But one of them wasn't George Hutchison. So he and seven other men on that plane died on oh. the very last day of the war. Wow. What an incredible story. Doing and one, a mercy one mission. Family. Yeah, a mercy mission. That's just two of your 1,200, and there were 400,000. You mentioned you've got people all over the country, all over the world, who are participating in the project with you. How many people are involved uh-huh. in this right now? So right now there's about 100 from those 31 states and two foreign countries that have expressed an interest. Okay. Not all of them are writing stories yet, but I've got probably the one lady from Minnesota that's written the most so far. In just a few weeks she's done it. She's done like 150 stories. Incredible. She just started off with a relative who was on a bomber, and after she wrote about him, she said, I'm going to write about the other guys from his unit that didn't come home. You'd be surprised how many of the people that were flying, the bombers and and fighters, didn't come home. There was more than 30,000 deaths there, and almost that many died from just crashes, not in combat, plane crashes. Sure, sure. And what about people who died of disease during the war? Yeah, those would be included. The U.S. actually has a start date and a finish date that comes from before Pearl Harbor and actually goes into 1946. They have a book that they published in 1946 that lists all the names of the fallen. The Army put together one for the European Air Force and the Navy put one for the Navy and Marines. So we already have a database of names, Ancestry.com. They're providing free access to these source records. If you don't already have a membership to Ancestry, they're partnering with me to get people free access. And also they have newspapers.com that has 1940s newspapers. So you can find stories about those individuals from their hometown newspapers. That's real helpful. And then all these stories are saved on Fold3. And by having all the stories in one database, that's what's going to make it possible for us to be able to do the uh, link from the smartphone app because everything will be in the database. And that's actually the easy part. The hard part's writing the stories. But to do this in the day of facial recognition, all the software is doing is just reading letters on a piece of stone, and it knows the GPS location for where it's at. And with just that basic information, all it takes is once you've scanned that, bingo, we've got the story. He's Don Milne. He's from Bountiful, Utah. He's the man behind this incredible effort. It's storiesbehindthestars.org. You can be part of it. And uh, Don, as I hear the numbers, I'm thinking it's actually really doable, isn't it, if you've got enough people involved? So let's hope Definitely we can, is. I'm, I'm we can help with it, that. It took 44 months to fight World War II for the Americans. I think we'll have this done in less time than that. Wow. Unbelievable. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Okay. Thanks for helping spread the word. And, you know, we like to do a thing now and again we call ordinary people with extraordinary finds. We get their stories. We find out how they did it. And I'm always so appreciative when somebody reaches out to me to share their story with me because they know I'm going to share their excitement. And one of those people is Zoe Kranick. She's out of Burke, Virginia, and she's on the line with me right now. How are you, Zoe? I'm great. Thank you. How long have you been a genie? Well, pretty much all my life. I mean, I was that little kid who... You know, would ask my mom for family stories, and I knew, you know, all my grandparents' um, brothers' and sisters' names, and I just, I always thought it was really fascinating. But I guess I really ramped up my research maybe a couple years ago when my daughter was born. Oh, that, that changes everything, doesn't it? You know, when your, your family comes along and you realize, oh, I've got things I've got to pass down to this child. Yes, exactly. That's how I feel. So give us the background here. You had a great-grandfather who came over from Italy in 1920, but he left behind a lot of folks. He did. One of his brothers came here with him, but we found out from an obituary, his obituary, that he actually had four sisters who survived him who remained in Italy. 
and this side of my family, you know, I'd always been really close to, and I never heard about these sisters, and immediately I wanted to know who they were and who their families were, and I wanted to know my second cousins and all those people in Italy. And unfortunately, my great-grandparents and my grandfather and his generation had all passed away at this point, and none of the following generations, my mom's or mine, had any information about this. They didn't know anything about the ants left behind? They never even heard of this? No, I mean... All we knew was four sisters who remained in Italy. That's all. That's all anybody that was it. knew. Wow. Because mm-hmm. I was yeah. thinking somebody had to know it to put it in the obituary. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was probably my grandfather's generation because it was in my great grandfather's obituary, and right. they knew. And some of them had gone to visit family in Italy, and but only really a handful of my mom's generation had ever even been there. So, sure. and and what they might have known was kind of. That's you lost. Know, gone at that point. Happens yeah. a lot. So what did you do? So I had um, done some research on an Italian record site, and I was hunting for them. The surname is a little uncommon, so I pretty much assumed that any records with this surname were probably in some way related to me, these people were. And I found one woman who the birth dates kind of were similar to my great-grandfather's, and I assumed she was one of the siblings, but I couldn't prove it. So trying to get that information was tricky because I felt like I was so close and I just couldn't get there. But around this time, I decided that I wanted to write a genealogy book for the side of my family because we didn't have one and we were, you know, very close. And about half of them were on Facebook. So I thought, what better way to get information quickly rather than writing letters would be just to tag them all in one Facebook post and talk together about this. I figured early on in the process when I realized I wanted to write a book is I really wanted to not just write dates, birth dates and death dates and and that kind of thing. I wanted to write the stories. I wanted to record the stories, you know, that were passed down in my family. I think that it wouldn't be the typical genealogy book, but that's what I wanted. Oh, absolutely. The stories are the key. That's what makes them live. Yes, exactly. And and I'm interested in what they look like and what they acted like, you know, what their traits were. So that was really important to me. So I figured I would do a series of posts and just ask people, you know, beg them for their stories about my grandfather and his siblings and, you know, if they had any of the great-grandparents, great. But my grandfather was one of seven children. So what I did was every few days I would release a new post with one of the siblings' names and ask for stories and photos from my family members. I tagged them all in. Great idea. And make it private. Yeah, it worked out really well. <laughs> I was afraid they wouldn't respond, but they responded quickly with, you know, these wonderful stories and photos, some I'd never seen before. Yeah. And I think it really brought us closer together, too. I mean, it was just a wonderful experience. Well, you've got to have a, a reunion then at some point as a result of this, right? I would love to. We used to do that every year, but when my grandfather died, you know, his house was where we would have them. And, and when he died, it kind of, we tried to keep it up, but it just kind of, you know, sure. we stopped doing it. But on one of the posts, I asked for information about the four sisters. And one of my cousins had inherited a photo album from her brother, who was one of the only members of the family to visit back in Italy. And he went in the 1970s. But unfortunately, tragically, he passed away a few years after he visited. But he left us this beautiful gift of his memories in this album. His sister posted a few of these photos on Facebook. And the surname of a picture of an older gentleman matched 
the married surname of the woman who I had found previously on the Italian record site oh, that I assumed was, yeah, so that was kind of confirmation for me, you know, this was one of the sisters. And that same surname showed up again in a photo of these three children. The little girl in the photo was named Anna. So again, I took to Facebook because it's worked for me so far. And, yeah, and I looked right. her up. <laughs> this is how it's yeah. done. Exactly. Yes. Facebook is a wonderful tool. So I found a woman who was the correct age with the correct name and living in a part of Italy that I thought would be you know, matched. So I figured this had to be her. And I knew that if I was able to connect with her, this would solve the mystery. I was so excited. So in March, I sent her the photograph of the three children. I messaged her and wrote something like, is this you? You know, so I think we're related. And I never heard back. So that was really That was it? (laughs) Well, meanwhile, I was continuing with my genealogy research, and I came across a blog from one of those distant cousins who had written about a shared ancestor we had, and I thought, that's a great idea. I should have a blog. Good point. (laughs) Because, yeah, so around the end of August, I started a blog. I did kind of secretly hope that, like I had found this blog of my distant cousin, that maybe, you know, one day some long-lost relative would stumble upon it and we could connect, and that would be really exciting. So one of my first posts was about the four mystery sisters in Italy. And I included the photo of the three children and wrote about trying to connect with Anna and my disappointment in not being able to. And I concluded the post with, like, I hope someday she does respond. I think she might be the key to putting this puzzle together. Right. And I never assumed that would... Ah, but we never (laughs) assume anymore, do we? (laughs) Yeah, who knows? (laughs) But about a month later, I opened up Facebook, and I saw I had a message. And I clicked into it, and to my surprise and shock, it was from Anna's daughter. And she said her mother was very sorry she didn't respond months ago, but she didn't know who I was. And she said they had found my blog the night before, and she wanted to connect, and she confirmed I was correct about the woman who I suspected was one of the four sisters. In fact, she was Anna's grandmother. And she concluded with the line, we want to help you put the puzzle together. And that was just... Yeah. (laughs) Did you jump up and down? Did you scream? What did you do? I had just come in uh, from lunch at my job, and I just walked into the building and was just, you know, reading it before I got to my desk. So I couldn't really (laughs) have a big reaction (laughs) like that. I did laugh and cry a little bit, though, like privately to myself. I I (laughs) think I'd have probably gone out to the car, shut the door and screamed for a moment, then gone back to work. I did that internally. <laughs> <laughs> She's Zoe Kranick from Burke, Virginia. Zoe, what a great find. You talk about ordinary people with extraordinary finds from the other side of the world. Only in this yes. era can things like this happen. Great work, Zoe. Thanks so much for sharing it, and we appreciate your coming on. Oh, thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking to you. David Allen Lambert is back. And, uh, David, we have a question from Greg Paris in your neck of the woods, Charlton, Massachusetts. And Greg asks, uh, New England towns are famous for their town meeting form of governance. Have records of these meetings been kept? How far back? Can these be a useful genealogical resource? Might they include lists of attendees or speakers? And might they be indexed? David, what say you? Indexed? Probably not. But I can tell you you can't find them. 
The town records are often included with the vital records because often a town would only have one book or great book that they would use. In my hometown of Stoughton, uh, we were incorporated in 1726, and the first page talks about the who was assigned as a constable and the tithing man and who was going out to be the fence viewers and who was laying out the roads. And then on the next page, it has John Withington's children were born on this day, and they give the children. And it's like, okay, why aren't they separate? You're only seeing them separate years later when they were copied over. Town records are great, and you will find them on FamilySearch.org. If you go under a town in New England, for instance, look for other than vital records. Look for town records, and these are often on the non-affiliate access level, so you should be able to get them for free. They're going to have things like cattle marks. That's when instead of having a brand on your cow, you cropped part of the poor thing's ear off, and now we would know that that was your mark or your cattle mark. So if the cow got strayed, and that's why we have common land in New England, because it was a town common where all the cows would be out to pasture, essentially. The other thing you'll find is occasionally you'll have tax records in them. You'll find, again, like I had said, people being assigned a town office, like a constable or the town clerk. The thing you probably won't get is those who attended the town meeting, because you were expected to attend town meeting back in those days, and it was held as sometimes a parish meeting, it would be at the parish meeting house because you didn't have a town hall early on. You would just meet at the church, and instead of the minister being on the pulpit, you'd have the town clerk or the town manager or the selectman, or you'd have a moderator. So these are records that are preserved. They're not as common as a lot of records are because a lot of people just want the birth, marriages, and deaths. If you want to get an insight to what your ancestor's life was in his community, definitely look at the town records. And ladies are in there, too. If you were brought for slander at the town meeting, you may be brought up on charges, maybe not just at the church, but maybe at a meeting of a public institution. So one of the things that you'll find in these records is you're getting the day-to-day activity of the community, and they're not indexed. So that's why a lot of people don't use them. So if you go through them and you're searching for your ancestor's name, you may get some insight. One thing, when they arrived in the community. Really? Because there may be proprietorship records within the town records itself, because the proprietorship is how the town was laid out often. People would be assigned a parcel of land in a community, and there would often be a proprietorship that would be set up. So the records of that proprietorship, and you got lot 10, and I got lot 11, and lot 12. And those records are often in the town records as well. But the verbiage of what went on in the town meeting, you may have what's called the town warrant. And the town warrant was what was going to be brought to the table during the town meeting. My hometown of Stoughton still has an annual town meeting. And this warrant would be, okay, this is what the business is going to be. If it's not on the warrant, we're not going to discuss it. And that would be there. But the exact verbiage, until the days of audio and video recording, you're probably not going to find out what your ancestor said. But if there was some sort of an outburst, if you will, if they were a rabble rouser, <laughs> they might be in the record. I love it. All right. Great question and a great answer, David. I'm going to have to look through some of those on FamilySearch.org. We've got another question here for Ask Us Anything with David Allen Lambert. David, this question comes from Alice Longley in Missoula, Montana, and she says, Fish and David, my research is going to the dog. Dogs. I okay. I have an old photo from the 1890s with a pair of St. Bernards with my ancestor. Is there any way to research these family pets? 
great question. <laughs> well, that's a different type of pedigree that I don't generally research. Yeah. <laughs> but I can tell you there are resources. Even in the 1800s, people had to license their dogs. Um, yeah, that's in true. Most communities. So there could be on your town clerk level, I mean, I would check with the Historical Society and Public Library, too, don't give up with the current town clerk, of the listings of the dog owners. So you know who your ancestor is. It may not say the name of Fido or King or how old he is or what breed he is, but you could find out that your ancestor paid for a dog license or licenses. Those are often put in town reports, too. They have a listing of the dog owners kind of right next to the list of the jurors, which is kind of an odd place. <laughs> that is a strange them. thing. What about cats? What about them? Are they, are they listed anywhere? Um, probably in the diaries of your family. <laughs> I suppose uh, that's in, true. That nobody had to license a cat. Right, okay. Um, so the other thing that you might find is, say if your dog got out and bit your neighbor, that may be in the newspaper. That may okay. also be that he may have brought you to small claims court. So there's court records, too. Uh, and hopefully they didn't have to shoot old Fido. You know, and of course, they could always have raided the chicken coop, and Farmer Brown may have been very upset, and that may have made the front page news. The other thing is that, who knows, maybe there was an ad in the paper for puppies for sale. I mean, there's a whole variety <laughs> of things you can look for. And the other thing is, of course, you know, pets don't last forever. Sadly, just this past week, we had to uh, put to sleep my cat that we've had for 18 years. Oh. and. She's buried in the backyard, but most pets would be. But back then, they also had pet cemeteries. And, you know, not to harken to Stephen King's movie, but the idea of a marked gravestone for one of these pets may be a thing. You might find out more than you bargained for when you're doing your pet research. So keep an eye out for different things. It's more than meets the eye when you're doing pet research. So you just kind of have to look for sources there may not be mainstream. I don't think you're going to find them on Ancestry.com, but I can tell you this much. On Find a Grave, yeah, search on Fido Smith sometime. Oh, and, or, and check out the cemetery that Charles Lindbergh is buried in in Maui in Hawaii. Oh, I visited mm -hmm. there. He's buried near some monkeys. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, and they're marked. Well, Find a Grave now marks pet cemeteries. So when I was doing my cemetery book on Massachusetts, I kept on finding things I'm like, what the heck is that? It's a pet cemetery, but they're included. So you can say find a grave may have gone to the dogs as well. <laughs> and <the cats>. Yes. <laughs> and the gerbils and the, and the monkey. <laughs> and all of them. All right, David. <laughs> that was a great question, Allison. A lot of fun. Thanks for asking that. And of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email us simply at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, stay safe and we'll talk to you again next week. Take care, my friend. Well, we have covered a lot of ground today. Thanks once again to Don Milne for coming on the show. This is a guy who got passionate about writing an obituary of uh, somebody who died in World War II on the American side every day on the anniversary of the war, at the 75th anniversary from the beginning and wrapping up coming up in September. Thanks also to Zoe Kranick for sharing her great story of connecting with some living relatives in Italy by not giving up. Hey, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.